This is Anthony Day. I'm the sustainability coach and I'd be delighted to chair your conference, deliver a keynote or help your management team use scenario planning to secure a sustainable future. Here's a date for your diary. Thursday the 5th of November 2015 at the Harrogate International Showground. We'll see the Sustainable Best Practice in Business Conference, ESOS and Energy, Supply Chain and Skills. We're inviting the Minister from DEC, Amber Rudd, the CEO of Unilever, Paul Polman, Lord Reedsdale from the Institute of Energy Managers and other industry representatives. Registration opens shortly. More details soon. But first, this is the Sustainable Futures Show. This week was a busy week and events developed almost faster than I could keep up. Fracking is once more in the news there's a report that soil erosion in East Anglia could seriously affect our food production. Electricity could be cheaper, but dirtier. What's going on in Battersea Park? It's getting hot in the tube. And I talked to Daniel White from Global Energy Systems on why you need a heat pump. Well, perhaps not today, but the word is that this weather won't last in spite of global warming. Last week I reported that the application for test drilling and test fracking at Roseacre Wood was refused by Lancashire County Council. This week, against the advice of planners and legal experts, the Council also refused the application for Little Plumpton. I expect there was dancing in the streets. This looks like a very high-risk strategy because councillors were warned that they were very unlikely to win on appeal and the Council would have to pay all the legal costs. On the other hand, an appeal will be a landmark case. It will meet the government head-on on one of its flagship policies. There was a debate in Parliament this week and it revealed all sorts of things which I'm sure the government would like to keep quiet, but which will almost certainly come out if the case goes to court. I've been reading Hansard, the official parliamentary record, and here are some of the things that I found in the record of last Tuesday's debate. Kevin Hollendrake, Conservative MP for Thirsk and Moulton in North Yorkshire, opened the debate and commented that France, Germany, New York State and others had all banned fracking. He then spoke about shale gas rural economy impacts, a report from the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, DEFRA, and told us that it had 63 redactions within 13 pages. This means that 63 items have been blacked out or censored, including a whole section on the impact of house prices. The government's position that there is a strong public interest in withholding the information did not go down well with his constituents. And then, the day after this debate, the government was required to publish the DEFRA report in its uncensored form. It includes admissions such as people living near fracking sites could see their house prices fall by up to 7%. A UK shale gas boom could lead to an increase in global greenhouse gas emissions. Waste fluids leaking from fracking operations in the US have resulted in environmental damage. 
Properties could incur additional insurance premiums if they are within a five-mile radius of fracking operations. The report includes early, often vague, assumptions which are not supported by appropriate evidence. No wonder they wanted to keep all that quiet. Kevin Hollandrake had other concerns as well. He said he would like to see a clearer, more robust and independent monitoring regime for the regulations. The operator commissions and pays for the services of the well examiner. This might be someone employed by the well operator's own organisation. He quoted evidence provided to the House of Lords Economic Affairs Committee stating that the weakest point of the regulatory process concerns the Environment Agency, which appears to have insufficient in-house expertise. He also told us that the fracking company Third Energy had stated that it might drill 950 wells in his constituency, which would require hundreds of thousands of lorry movements, all in one of the country's most beautiful counties, with an economy heavily dependent on agriculture and tourism. Dr Alan Whitehead, Labour MP for Southampton Test, was concerned about projected production figures from DEC, as they were based on the maximum output from any well ever achieved in the US, he thought this was an unrealistic baseline. He said that 10,000 to 18,000 wells would be needed nationally to replace the gas which we currently import from Qatar. These would not be scattered all over the country, but would be concentrated in Lancashire and the Weald in the southeast. They would have a life of about 20 years, but would need redrilling every seven years or so. New pipelines would have to be built across the country or lorries would have to collect the gas. This, in addition to the thousands of lorry journeys, needed to deliver the fracking fluids. After 20 years, the sites would be abandoned. He suggested that anaerobic digestion, converting agricultural waste to gas, should be considered as an alternative. The process could continue as long as farmers were in business, not just for 20 years. Farmers in South Ribble are particularly concerned about fracking. Seema Kennedy MP said any pollution of groundwater could contaminate their crops and destroy their business. The Ribble Valley is one of the most fertile parts of the country and produces a major part of the nation's salad crop. The debate continued with concerns raised about the regulations, the disposal of used fracking liquids and the effects on house prices and on public health. Two MPs were firmly in favour of fracking, two were cautious, most, from all parties, were opposed. Andrea Ledsom, the Minister of State at DEC, responded to the debate emphasising the need for energy security and stating that we are likely to continue relying on gas to provide much of our heat as well as to generate electricity into the 2030s. Flexible electricity generation, such as that fuelled by gas, is also needed to help balance the electricity grid as our policies bring forward relatively inflexible and intermittent low-carbon generation. She talked about the benefits of a successful shale gas industry, not just in energy security, but in direct benefits to jobs, growth and community investment. And she promised a sovereign wealth fund, with the industry's commitment to putting £100,000 per exploration well to local communities, and then a minimum of 1% of any subsequent production revenues. Local councils would retain 100% of the business rates that they collect from 
productive shale gas developments. Ernst & Young, she said, has estimated that a thriving shale industry could mean 64,500 jobs nationally, or over 100 jobs per year at a typical site. The value of the supply chain for the industry has been estimated at £33 billion between 2016 and 2032. This is an incredible opportunity. We are at a pre-beginning phase, but there is a huge amount to play for. British engineering is at the forefront of the world, and we have the opportunity to showcase that further by developing for ourselves a safe and environmentally sound shale gas industry. What do I think? It's still a fossil fuel. It still has a carbon footprint. We have a commitment to reduce the nation's carbon footprint. When he heard that the applications had been rejected, the chief executive of Quadrilla repeated the point that sourcing gas locally was far more secure than buying it from Qatar or Russia. True, and there's no doubt that we have an energy problem as our power stations age and the margin between supply and winter demand gets tighter and tighter. But gas is not the only answer, and we don't yet know that it is an answer. That's why they're carrying out test drilling. On the other hand, we already know that solar panels and wind turbines and anaerobic digesters all work. Yes, they are intermittent, not the digesters. But the old complaint that electricity cannot be stored is increasingly untrue. Tesla recently announced new domestic battery packs. Technology is advancing rapidly. And there are other technologies apart from batteries that can store energy. To anyone who says we haven't got time, I would simply say that even if everything goes strictly to plan, it will be at least five years before fracking starts producing gas commercially. And it will be a very, very long time before we have 10,000 wells in production. But what about demand? We waste vast amounts of energy. Managing demand is essential. Bring back the Green Deal, or at least something like it that actually works. That will create jobs too. And why do I call fracking David Cameron's poll tax? Well, the poll tax was brought in by Margaret Thatcher against the advice of her ministers and against strong opposition in the country, which led to riots. The poll tax was repealed and replaced with a council tax, and it was the beginning of the end for Margaret Thatcher as Prime Minister of Great Britain. The majority of MPs who opposed fracking in this debate were from David Cameron's own Conservative Party. He is going to find implementing this policy extremely difficult. Almost as hard as the third runway at Heathrow. But that's another story. Meanwhile, in other news this week, Moody's published a report suggesting that electricity is likely to get cheaper as we increase our capacity to import it from the continent. Their electricity is cheaper because, at least in Germany, their lower carbon taxes encourage them to generate more electricity from coal. Cheaper, but dirtier. The Committee on Climate Change warns that agricultural land, particularly in East Anglia, could become unviable within a generation unless something is done. We'll have to add still more to the 40% of food that we already import, with consequences for food security and food prices. East Anglia grows acres of wheat, and farmers have removed trees and grubbed up hedges to make fields ever larger and to give ploughs and combine harvesters long straight runs.
Britain has lost 84% of its fertile topsoil since 1850, and these changes in land management are accelerating the problem. Without trees as windbreaks, the wind is blowing the soil away. As climate change reduces rainfall and warms the soil, it crumbles to dust, and the problem only gets worse. When rain does come, and increasingly it comes in violent storms, it washes the soil away. It's time to take action and recognise that topsoil is another vital, non-renewable resource that is rapidly running out. What has been going on in Battersea Park? Last weekend saw the final race in the International Formula E series that started in Beijing last September and saw meetings in Buenos Aires, Miami, Monte Carlo, Berlin and Moscow before the final in London. Yes, it's Formula One, but not as we know it. It's electric. For example, when the drivers make for the pits, it's not to change the tyres or top up the washer bottle, but to pick up a completely new car with a fully charged battery. My petrolhead friends say it's not the same. It's not as fast and it doesn't make that roar as the cars go past. I'm sure Jay Clarkson hates it as much as he hates my Toyota Prius. Nevertheless, names like Trulli, Prost and Yamamoto, Renault, Audi and Virgin are taking it seriously. Formula One has always been seen as an essential testbed for new automotive technologies. Welcome to the future. Wednesday the 1st of July was the hottest July day on record at 36.7 degrees centigrade. It got up to 35 degrees centigrade in the London Tube as well. I remember reading somewhere that waste heat is a problem for the network in normal times, with heat from passengers, from the trains, the lights, the escalators and all the other plant. What could they do with it? Maybe they need a heat pump. It so happens that this week I was talking to Daniel White from Global Energy Systems and this is what he told me. We spoke on Skype to keep our carbon footprint down. OK, well, we're talking, I think, on the hottest day of the year so far. So talking about heating doesn't seem to be really the right thing to do. But no, it um, uses me that the hottest day just comes after midsummer. And once you're in midsummer, you're on the way to the heating season. Yeah, well, yes, OK. But look, when I think of heating, I think of gas. If I'm off grid, I think of oil uh, or possibly electricity. And if I want to be really green, I might think of biomass and getting a wood chip burner. But I don't think I'd think of a heat pump. And I think there are two questions that uh, people will ask. And uh, the first is, what is a heat pump? And the second is, why would I want one? Okay. Well, what is a heat pump? Um, an air source heat pump particularly is fundamentally a fridge working in reverse. Same technology that cools the inside of the fridge and dumps heat out of the back of it, which is the heat that you feel can be reversed to draw heat from the outside and dump it into your heating system. If you were to take a fridge, push it through your garden door and open its doors to the outside world, you would effectively be heating your kitchen with the back of the fridge. Re-engineer all of that and you can get enough heat to deliver through radiators, to warm domestic hot water and to effectively replace a boiler, be that gas or oil or LPG or whatever. Renewables, I think, in general, are you know, becoming more known about, sort of more people, more people becoming aware of them. 
But I think if you suggest renewables to most, they normally think about electricity generation. And heat generation is actually the next big push from the government. That's what the renewable heat incentive is for, and it's one of the biggest causes of carbon in domestic usage. Now, heat pumps have a lot to play in that. They're very simple to install. They just plug into radiator systems. They deliver you the heat that you need. And they're a single box sitting on the outside of your house. Right. Uh, Let me just stop you there, because my impression of a heat pump um, means that you've got to go out and dig up the garden and lay pipes and uh, all that sort of thing. And it's only really for uh, uh, big estates or, or commercial operations. So heat pumps can take their source of energy from three normal sources, sort of in reverse order, water source, um, which you may read of some very big scale properties up at, uh, projects up in Norway at the moment, ground source, which is what you're talking about, which is where you dig up the ground and then suck the energy out of the ground, and air source. Now, air source take the energy out of the air. Now, the air, compared to any house, has got infinite amounts of energy in it, whereas the ground doesn't, because it needs to be recharged by the sun. And water is usually beyond most people's scopes, because you do have to have the lake in the garden, which kind of defines the size of your garden. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, so you've got something, I think you said a box on the, on the outside of the house. This is where um, it interacts with the air, then? Exactly. So it looks a bit like a fridge freezer. But yeah. The two additional components are, first of all, a bigger compressor because heat pumps are trying to get a lot more energy out than your fridges. And the second is a fan. And that means that rather than the passive transfer of air over the evaporator on the back of the fridge, you have a fan driving air through. Now, we'll take 7 degrees C, 7 degrees of centigrade out of that air as it passes through. And that's the energy that we're passing into your house. Right, two things. Um, you've got a fan in there. What's mm-hmm. the noise level from these units? They're about 63, 64 decibels at a metre, which is almost exactly the same as the exhaust from an oil boiler. So it's a very similar level of noise. As low as that? Yes. I see. I see. Uh, right, you take seven degrees out of the ambient air, but uh, what if it's a very cold day and it's below freezing? Refrigerants that we use in heat pumps boil at minus 40. So if you let them out into the UK air on any given day, they will always boil. Now, it's when they boil that they pull the energy out of the air. That's the the clever bit. It's the the movement from one state of um, energy into another, from one state, physical state into another. As you go from the liquid to the gas, that's where the energy is absorbed. That's That's why it's taking energy out of the air. Now, when it is minus 20 outside, a heat pump has to work an awful lot harder than when it's at plus 20. Mm-hmm. And that does make air source a trickier concept in terms of system design. Now, that's where the microgeneration certification scheme, MCS, comes in. MCS sets benchmarks, regulations, and accreditation, ultimately, for product and installers of heat pumps. Now, Anybody who's looking at a heat pump needs to ensure that they're working with MCS products and an MCS installer because that gives you the certainty that it will be specified correctly for your property at the right external temperatures for the right internal target and that this change in output across temperature has been taken into account. 
Now, we are both manufacturers and installers under MCS. So we've managed to, we are accredited right the way through the process of both production through to commissioning on your home. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that you are manufacturers because there are so few manufacturers. And particularly if you look at other sorts of renewables like solar panels, I think we take it for granted they'll come from China. So you are, manu- are you manufacturing in China or are you manufacturing? No, we're very proud to say that we make them on the Lancashire coast in Lytham. Um We make them here in the UK. We designed them here in the UK. Um, so our heat pump looks like a heat pump. Um, it has the scale and guts, as it were, to deal with a British damp winter. Um, many heat pumps are air-conditioned units running in reverse. Um, we didn't believe that was the place to start, and because we were starting the blank piece of paper, we could design it very differently. Um, so we end up with a very different-looking and performing product. The question, the second question, of course, is why would I want one? And I think the answer's got to be because it's going to save me money. Uh, is is that true? Is it is is it competitive in terms of uh, a source of heat? It it is competitive. Um, if you were to wind back eighteen months, and you were on oil, um, the no brainer statement comes in. Um, oil this year is remarkably cheap, um, so it's not quite as compelling a um, concept as it was a year ago. Uh, but what it will be in another year, you know, neither we nor you nor anybody else knows. Where the government have stepped in and they have introduced the renewable heat incentive. So the renewable heat incentive will pay you for any energy that you generate to heat your home. Which means that you now get a payment for the first seven years of the life of the system. Um, and that is intended to entice you over to the low carbon technologies of heat pumps rather than the higher carbon technologies of general combustion, either oil or gas or LPG. So this is, a bit, this is a bit like the feed-in tariff as an incentive for solar electricity, although only seven years. It is, and they, they did it for a simple reason. They, 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 did, they made the calculation based on the same premise as the feed-in tariff, that they wanted to give a 5% rate of return. Um, however, people move house every seven years, so they accelerated it to seven years. So you are, in theory, getting a 20-year 5% return, but it's been accelerated to seven years. Right, OK. So are you saying it'll, it'll pay for itself in seven years? It should do. Um, the calculation that they base the 20% on is murky, to say the least, um, or the 20-year on is murky, to say the least. I, Depending on where you start from, we offer domestic paybacks of somewhere between four years and never, honestly. Um, And never is when you have a very small property running on mains gas um, because the heat pump is effectively too big for the property um, and gas is very cheap. Um, But for most people that we're talking to, it's somewhere between four and ten years. Right. Okay. Uh, is this something which will be available under the Green Deal? Technically, it is. Um, if you've ever tried to persuade a Green Deal assessment to do what you want it to, um, you'll find that it's relatively difficult. Um, there are heat pumps available for the Green Deal. Um, I am unaware of anybody who's ever got one through the Green Deal. Um, and the last time I looked at Green Deal statistics, I'm unaware of anybody being offered them through the Green yeah. Deal. Yeah, oh, uh, Green Deal has had its problems, of course. We're all yes. aware of that. And 
Also, if you look at it, I mean, even if you take a 10-year payback, a 10-year payback is a 10% rate of return, um, which is a awful lot better than is going on the bank in the moment. Yes. The Green Deal lends to you at 8%, or maybe 7 um, So there aren't that many people who are taking it up through Green Deal. Right, okay, okay. Now, well, so far we've just been talking about uh, domestic, and this is presumably domestic hot water, uh, as well as uh, heat to radiators, water radiators. Yes, absolutely. Um, and one of the things that we were able to do in designing our system was to allow it to do both things at once. Now, it's quite unusual with heat pumps. Um, heat pumps have gas temperatures that may be 80, 90 degrees, um, which means they don't have that sort of two or 300 degree you know, flame. So doing two things at once is sometimes a stretch for heat pumps. What we've managed to do is to put in what technically is called a de-superheater. Um, the gas at 80 degrees, because this stuff boils at minus 40, mm-hmm. is pretty frisky by then, um, and it's actually quite difficult to control. And that's called superheated. So we take out the superheat from the gas, and we dump that in your domestic hot water cylinder before the now still hot gas gets into the main heat exchanger, which deals with the central heating. So that once your central heating is up and running and is steady and is at the flow temperature that it's supposed to be at, we start to de-superheat the gas. So that means that through a few hours of heating running, if you haven't turned your hot water on, you will have a hot water cylinder at 70 degrees C. That's very unusual for heat pumps. In the summer, when we are dedicating ourselves to the domestic hot water, we, we would cap it off at 50, as would most people. So in the winter, you end up with excess capacity of hot water, because it's at 70 degrees, which means that effectively you're getting free hot water through the winter. Right. When I changed out my gas boiler for a condensing boiler, my hot water cylinder disappeared. If I wanted a heat pump, would I have to put a hot water cylinder back? Yep, so technically you've not gone to a condensing, you've gone to a combi boiler. Right. Uh, which is this cunning piece of very hot liquid, which can, uh, very hot uh, flame, which can deal with doing two things at once. Heat pumps aren't combis. Um, so, yes, you do need a, a separate um, domestic hot water cylinder. You would also, in nearly all installations, have a buffer cylinder. Now, a buffer cylinder gives you some, some thermal inertia, some, a heat store in your central heating system. Mm-hmm which means that if your heat pump is off doing some domestic hot water, then it's got a, a body of hot water to flow around your radiator so you don't notice a temperature difference when some other things are going on. And the second thing it deals with is that all heat pumps frost up, therefore have to defrost. And the reason they frost up is that 7 degree temperature differential in the air. As air cools, it can hold less moisture and in our usually damp UK climate, that means that a lot of condensation falls out of it. Now, as you approach 0 degrees C with air temperature, that liquid is then freezing, so it freezes up. So the heat pump, every now and again, sometimes once an hour in a sort of dank winter's day, will go into reverse, flush the freezing, the ice, out of the evaporator, and then turn itself back around again. And that might take a couple of minutes, three or four minutes. Um, and during that period, the buffer cylinder means that your central heating keeps ticking away and it doesn't notice it. It can be fantastically dramatic. You can get these great plumes of steam on a sort of dry winter's day. Um, and we have been known to have phone calls asking people whether their heat pumps are on fire. 
It's actually just a, a good blast of wind to steam. I see. It sounds to me as though it's quite a complicated unit, which suggests that it's going to be quite an expensive unit to install to start with. I mean, it's going to be more than a gas boiler, isn't it? Yes, they are. Um, and there's no avoiding that um, of whatever format. Um, there are very few heat pump installations that get in for under £10,000. Um, really? Really? Yes, and that, that's kind of what I was talking about earlier on about scale. Um, as a rule of thumb, you probably need to be spending £2,000 on your heating bill to make it worthwhile looking at a heat pump. Right. Uh, if you're doing it just to save money. Yeah. Now, there are other reasons. If you are building a new build at the moment, putting heat pump on allows you to improve your renewable credentials, uh, reduce your carbon emissions, and therefore improve your planning options. Gives you, technically, it reduces your SAP number. Um, if you're refurbishing, similarly, it allows you to do things that planners are far more open to um, developments with renewables on them. There are people who are concerned about their carbon footprint. There are people concerned about what the price of oil will do over the next five or ten years. And all of those play back into the fact that at something under a 10-year return, if you can find that £10,000, it's a fairly good investment. Yeah, and of course you can run your heat pump for part of the time on the power from your solar panels if you've got them, can't you? You can. I am I'm somewhat sceptical. There, there is a bit of a, um, a habit of co-selling the two. Um, personally I think you should look at them as two separate things heat pumps save you money on your heating solar PV saves you money on your electricity both attract subsidies and every now and again they will both be doing what they're supposed to be doing at the same time Yes. Okay. the sun will be shining and your PV will be generating well my PV is generating like mad at the moment Excellent. I'm sure I'm sending far far more back to the grid than I'm using or even being paid for so that's why I thought you know Exactly. Now, then again, I don't need a heat pump at the moment no. because it's nice and warm. Yes, but on a, a nice, bright spring day when it is, say, 10 degrees outside, um, then your heating could easily be on. Yeah, yeah. And you could easily be generating um, electricity, which would otherwise be surplus, and at that point the two do overlap. Right, okay. Uh, I, I step away from the sort of co-selling because I am yet to find a database of solar hours per hour of the day, as opposed to you know, generic over a year, which allows me to say, here is a prediction of how often the two things will go on at the same time. Yeah, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. What sort of life are we looking at for one of these units? They're a fridge. <laughs> right. um, I remember my granny having a 30-year-old fridge. Um, yeah, they don't make them like that anymore, though, do no. they? <laughs> um, we build them for 20 years. Um, we are Our sister company is an automotive business, so we understand life cycle, um, and that's why we try to build them that way. And how yeah. long do you guarantee them for? We only guarantee them for three, um, and that's mostly because of the guarantees that we can get from our part suppliers. Um, okay. Once you start getting lawyers involved in warranties, you're not allowed to do much, which you can't back up. I see, yes. But then... Uh, the other question is maintenance. My boiler gets serviced every year. Does somebody have to come in and service my heat pump every year? Probably not. Um, again, it's a fridge. Um, it has two moving parts. It has a compressor and it has a fan. Mm -hmm. um, it has a refrigerant circuit, which as, it get, as the heat pump gets bigger, eventually comes into some refrigerant regulations that you ought to look at for months a year. 
Um, but that's not actually a requirement on domestic. All of our heat pumps are delivered with a mobile phone SIM chip in the back of them. And therefore, we can talk to them and they can talk to us. Now, for the first three years running coincidentally with the warranty, we will optimize this system for you. So if something looks awry, the system will tell us and we will look at it. Now, nine times out of ten, you can bring it back to optimal again by changing a few software settings. If it's something else, be it user error, i.e. Mrs. Jones pressing the button too often, um, or the classic um, airlock in a radiator, we will contact you and say, look, this is what you need to do. And in a slim chance of it being something physically wrong, we will usually be calling you to say, uh, dear Mrs. Jones, you are about to receive a visit from um, a plumber with this part ready to do what's, to fix what's wrong. Um, so within that context, we personally don't sell maintenance um, programs. Um, others do, uh, but we find that the SIM card does most of the job for us. Right, and... Does that operate just in the three-year guarantee period, or does it go on longer than that? You can renew it after. It's basically a data charge after that. It's 100 quid a year at the moment. Right. Uh, it right. was 130 quid a year last time we looked at it, and you know, as data charges go down, so the price goes down. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, look, uh, so far we've talked exclusively about domestic, but is this viable, or is it used on a commercial scale as well? Absolutely. Heat is heat. Um, uh, well, yes. To, to whatever extent you're using heat, the heat pump can be relevant. Um, now, there are processes in you know, industry which you know, run at 80, 90 degrees of water or indeed steam. Um, heat pumps can only help in preheat to processes like that. Yeah. But if you're in low temperature heat or all year heat or um, space heating, which of course is an awful lot in commercial, then heat pumps are just as relevant. And what sort of uh, outputs do they go up to? So we make a single unit which will give you 140 kilowatts peak, uh, about 90 kilowatts when it's minus three outside. Um, so we have one of those running a three and a half thousand square meter um, warehouse. Right. Okay. So you've you've got more on the domestic side than on than on the on the commercial side. So far, yeah, the commercial machines are relatively new to us. They're only two or three years old. Right. Um, most of our commercial usage is in um, either straightforward space heating, um, swimming pools, so uh, leisure centres, um, and also agriculture, uh, where people are trying to use heat, you know, almost by definition off-grid. Right. Um, and right. heat pumps are great for that. Great. Well, thank you very much. This is all very interesting stuff. So thank you for taking the time to uh, explain this to us. I've been talking to Daniel White from Global Energy Systems. How long has your company been established, Daniel? We just came up eight years, I think, was the um, anniversary last time I looked. Right, so this is established technology. Absolutely, yes. Little known, I think, so I hope that uh, it'll spark some ideas amongst our listeners, and uh, I will put your contact details on the um, on the website which relates to this podcast, and uh, I'm sure they'll get in touch if... Uh, if they think they'd like to know more. But for the moment, uh, Daniel, thank you very much indeed. That's been really useful. Thank you. Good to see you. Daniel White from Global Energy Systems. You can get in touch on daniel.white at globalenergysystems.co.uk. Daniel told us that there were three possible sources of energy for heat pumps, the soil, the air and water. 
There is a map of the best locations for installing water source heat pumps published by DEC. Go to www.gov.uk and search for water source heat map. Water is difficult to use, as he said, unless you have access to a body of water, ideally flowing. Where this is possible, it's the best solution because water holds far more heat, volume for volume, than air, and unlike soil, it's constantly moving and replenishing itself. Well, that's it for another week. Another episode of the Sustainable Futures Show, brought to you completely free of charge and without a penny of advertising or sponsorship. Maybe I should set up a Just Giving page. That's for you, Richard. This is Anthony Day, the sustainability coach, dedicated to spreading the word about sustainability, about better ways of doing things, so we can all, in all countries, enjoy a comfortable lifestyle in spite of the challenges from rising population, climate change, energy shortages, and all the other sustainability issues. Let's get out there and find opportunities. This is Anthony Day. Until next week. Thank you.